Even in the midst of change, the Word of the Lord remains. Speaking of the Word of the Lord, do you know anyone who actually lives by the golden rule? <laughs> Nobody puts their hand up. Like, hmm, let me think. Yeah. Do you know anybody, as we've been seeing it declared in the Sermon on the Mount for these last nine weeks, uh, coming into week 10 today, do you know anyone who actually lives by that message? Because the capstone of the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, the golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, because this is the law and the prophets. Do you know anyone who actually lives by this golden rule consistently? Maybe that's a better way. I love it. I just love it when I encounter people who are practicing the golden rule. Don't you? Don't you just love it? I mean, who does not like this or love it when they encounter people who are living this way? Uh, they give me their parking spot close to the store, even though they beat me there by a couple seconds. I haven't met that person yet, but I'm waiting. Um, they pay for my coffee ahead of me in line. Have you had that happen to you? Yes, I know some of you have. Here's a big one. They give me the benefit of the doubt instead of assuming the worst. And I would suppose that even people who have no use for Jesus Christ, no use for Him in their life, no use for uh, putting a belief in Him as a person, would still affirm and welcome His golden rule, I'm assuming. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the message that Jesus, uh, within it con is contained this message, this, this golden rule for life. It's a call to each one of us as followers of Jesus Christ to live thoughtfully, you know, to consider before we speak, uh, to live selflessly, to consider others before we do, uh, to live in such a way that we consider others before we consider ourselves. And that is day in and day out. It's, I mean, are you overwhelmed just thinking about that? Others who don't just love us, but others who may even hate us. That's the golden rule. And in God's golden rule, we get a glimpse of the world as it's supposed to be. Have you picked that up as you've gone through chapter 5, 6, and 7? It's a glimpse of the world that, that God made it to be, but it's been destroyed and broken by sin, our sin. It's a world in which our ultimate concern is to always be, day in and day out, God. And that concern for him translates into a love for him, this, this burning love for God, and then coupled with that is a corresponding love for others. But here's the rub that every one of us in this room and watching online knows. The golden rule, we all agree it should be applied to every area of our life and all of our relationships with our friends, with our enemies, with our family, with strangers. But it's exactly right there in the dirt of the reality of life that we all struggle. Do you struggle? I struggle. And we all struggle, and yet it's so obvious that Jesus knows each one of us intimately. He understands the struggle that we go through living this life. He lived here for 32, approximately 32 years. 
and he understands where we live, and he understands with whom we live. He gets it. And that's why he modeled for us, not just in the sermon, but through the rest of his earthly life, as all his earthly life. He models, modeled for us what it looks like to be utterly dependent on our Father in heaven at every step, at every turn. And we, his children, we live and we breathe as citizens of Jesus Christ's kingdom through the Holy Spirit of God. A sensitivity to the control of the Holy Spirit in each one of our lives. God places the third person of the Trinity in each of his own children. Are you a child of God? Because if you say yes, then you have the indwelling Holy Spirit of God within you. You have been transformed. You are not the same anymore. We are not alone. We are not without resources. We are not without direction. We're not without comfort. And we're definitely not without hope to live by these lofty standards that we find in Jesus' declared truth in this sermon. The Holy Spirit. He brought every one of us who knows Jesus Christ as our Savior to salvation. The Holy Spirit did that for you. He did it for me. He reveals the gateway that Jesus talked about last week. The door, the only one, Jesus. He reveals that to each of us. He revealed it to you at some point in your life. And the light turned on. The Holy Spirit puts us on and keeps us on the pathway after we go through that gate, that narrow pathway. And it's revealed to us in the Word of God how we should walk, how we should respond to the situation that we're going to encounter this afternoon. And we, by faith in Jesus Christ, receive eternal life. I mean, come on. Do you get excited about that? Do you wake up in the morning and go, yeah, I got this ahead of me, but I got eternal life. I am never going to die spiritually. And I'm going to get a new body. And we've got a new nature right now. Not one that's coming. We've got a new nature right now. Our previous dead roots <laughs> that every one of us was born with, we were dead. There is no divine spark. Forget about what you're hearing on the airwaves. <laughs> we are not getting better. We were born dead. And those dead roots have been made alive. That's the Sermon on the Mount. The Holy Spirit unites us with Christ in His death and in His resurrection. The Holy Spirit gives us what we need to be victorious over the sin that causes us to want to bear bad fruit in our lives, to do the opposite of what the sermon says. Paul captures this in Romans chapter 6. Let me just read you a couple verses from Romans chapter 6 before we get to our concluding message on the Sermon on the Mount. Starting in verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? That's a rhetorical question. Do you not know that all of us all of us who are trusting in Jesus Christ as our Savior. We've been baptized into Jesus Christ. We were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Why? In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. 
That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's the Sermon on the Mount, this newness of life. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified. Quit going back there. Was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You say, I can't help it. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, yes, you can. Verse 7, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 11, so you, you, you and me, who know Jesus as our Savior, we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit controls each of us as we yield to God and as we submit to God's message. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. Look carefully then how you walk. Here's the whole pathway illustration again. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best of the time. And don't we know it? Because the days are evil. They just are. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has told us clearly what the will of God is. People are saying, what's the will of God? Read the Sermon on the Mount. There it is, spelled out in black and white. Or if you've got a red letter edition Bible, it's in red. What it is for citizens of the kingdom. So, so a question at the conclusion of this sermon um, could be, am I, Peter Mannering, am I treating others according to Jesus' message by the power of the Holy Spirit? Or am I neglecting my neighbor and trying to do life myself. I've got to ask myself that every day. Am I producing the fruit that my spiritual roots that God gave me in Jesus Christ, the kind of fruit that can grow naturally because I'm a child of God? Or do I have some kind of fruit imposter on my branch from time to time when I try to do things myself and I know that the master gardener is going to prune those branches. And can we even tell the difference? Jesus told us last week how to know bad fruit from good fruit, how to know if you're dealing with a disciple of God's kingdom or a disciple of hell's kingdom because those are the only two kingdoms. The question is not only, have you entered in? Have you gone through the gate that's called Jesus? But is there real change? Real change in our lives? Are we walking consistently on the narrow path? A path that God prepared before the foundation of the earth for you and I to walk on. It's amazing. How many of you like apples? Like, you, you, if, if you don't like apples, you shouldn't live in Michigan, all right? Like, apples are, okay, so you like apples, most of us do. Do you have a favorite variety? Call it out. Yeah. What? Jazz. Jazz? There's such a thing? <laughs> Got to try it. I thought I heard Fuji. Thank you. Honeycrisp. High five. Yes. Honeycrisp. Okay. And there, there's so many others, right? And have you ever anticipated during apple season whatever that variety is you love the taste 
and, and you, you buy it at the store, you get it at a, at a stall along the, the highway, and, and you've got that, and you sink your teeth into it, anticipating what you believe to be the taste of that variety, and it's not there. I've done this. Have you done this? Something about the way it was cared for or maybe the, the tree is too old now or, or the way it was transported and uh, ripened. Something just didn't measure up. It fell short and you were disappointed in the, in the taste. Spiritual fruit that you and I through Jesus Christ produce will show that we are spiritual people and our taste will match the variety we say we are, that we are God's. God's children taste a certain way. There's no disappointment. Spiritual fruit will, will reveal that there is a spiritual gardener who is pruning the branches, who is ripening them according to his will, who is preparing this fruit for other people. It's not, the fruit's not for us to eat, although we sure get to. It's primarily for other people, for others, for God's glory. God only makes good fruit. That's it. The best. Only godly fruit will truly satisfy the hunger in the people you and I encounter to satisfy what they really need. will answer their hunger, and that's Jesus. So after Jesus illustrates his big idea uh, through showing us how uh, a, a, a tree's fruit is connected to the tree's roots. You can't forget this. He moves on to exposing the foundations of the buildings that people all over this globe are giving their lives to build. And you and I are building something. Verse 24, chapter 7. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell like it is right now outside. I mean, it was coming down, and we've got like 60-mile-an-hour winds coming this afternoon, so hang on to your hat. And the rain fell, and the floods came. It's prophecy. And the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. In our current age of permissivism and pluralism, the claims of Jesus stand out in sharp contrast. The Sermon on the Mount goes against almost everything that you're going to hear through the media and through the philosophers of our day. Jesus does not agree with, it does not matter what you believe so long as you are sincere. He doesn't go there. Jesus does not allow for, we're all climbing up to God by the root of our own choice. It doesn't matter. All roads lead to heaven. He does not fit in with societies. Just do your best. Do the best you can. And you know, in the end, it'll all flesh out good. Just don't kill anybody. 
Instead, Jesus says that there are only two ways that you can build. That's it. There were two gates, remember? There were two fruits, good and bad. Now there are only two foundations. Not many, just two. And you can either build on him and his teaching, which he was so clear in the Sermon on the Mount with, and you'll always find that as solid as a rock, or you can build on any other religion or philosophy that comes around in the world, and you will find that it is built on sand, and in the last day it will spell ruin for your eternal soul. This is the sermon's last point. This is Jesus' last lingering image he wants to leave with us, the two foundations. The question is not only have you entered in by the Jesus gate, and is there real change, you're walking on the narrow path, but what are you really building on, Jesus says. And he wants his hearers, and he wants you and I to ask ourselves, whether or not we're building on the only foundation that will bear the weight of this life. And even more importantly, are we building on the only foundation that will bear the weight of the penalty of death? And the answer is Jesus to both of those. We all know that the weight can be too great to bear. This last year has been devastating on a lot of you and a lot of your neighbors. Our country is torn apart. And Jesus is declaring that there's only one foundation that can bear the storms of life, that there is only one foundation that will endure at the final judgment where we're all going. That's a pretty exclusive statement, isn't it? Um, that's a, a pretty bold statement for our postmodern, relativistic, pluralistic culture. And so how do we Christians justify this kind of exclusivism? Because it does seem, if you're standing on the outside looking in, if you let yourself do that, it seems kind of arrogant and bold and brash, doesn't it? But remember, we are not defending all the people included in our current world's definition of what a Christian is. Are you listening to the media? Stop it. Because there is some arrogance that comes out of Christian culture. And there are plenty of wolves in sheep's clothing identifying with the global multitude calling itself Christian. We're not saying that we are more deserving than everyone else. Paul declared as a follower of Jesus Christ that he was the chief of all sinners. None of us deserve a thing from God except his justice. And often the Christian church, that great global multitude that identifies and calls itself the Christian church, is not building on that solid of a foundation. Oh, they're building, but often they're not building on Jesus Christ. And often it's weak. 
and often it does not even stand up to comparison what is best in other religions or even liberal humanism. It's not the religion of Christianity as it's defined by our current media that we disciples are concerned about defending and vindicating. It's the people who live out the message on the sermon of, of the Sermon on the Mount, those are who we identify with as our own. That's our church family. And we defend at any cost. Dietrich Bonhoeffer stated this, Jesus Christ came to destroy religion. I think I know what he meant, but there are some people who have gone way too far with that statement. And they've declared that all religion is completely worthless. Jesus Christ came to destroy religion. Kinda. Religion, if it is conceived as a human, an attempt, a human attempt to become acceptable to God through good works or some, following some belief system, yes, that's a false refuge. It will not keep you from the wind and the hail of life and the storms that come. It will not give you the grace and mercy of God at the final judgment. But what Jesus offers is a totally different kind of faith in the Sermon on the Mount. It's pure religion. It shows itself in loving your neighbor and your, and your enemy. It begins from not you reaching up to God, but God reaching down and saving you. It's not just a, a, a religion. It's a revelation and an all-out divine rescue by God the Father for those He loves. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus is the revelation of what God is like. There has never been such a, a true likeness of God than Jesus Christ. The king has come to bring in his kingdom. And he's declaring it here in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, what it looks like. And he is no less than God's rescue for men and women. Men and women who are lost in their self-centeredness and their sin. And God offered his life to accomplish that redemption. What kind of a day-to-day -day religion did our master and king have in mind? Well, his stepbrother, James, describes it in James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious, but does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That alone should keep you busy <laughs> for the rest of your life and keep you out of trouble. Um, well, at least the kind of In Christ, God is broken in with blinding light. In Christ, God has exposed our darkness. 
And John, speaking of Jesus, declares in John chapter 1, verse, verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. In Jesus, God has provided for you and I as sinners the perfect sacrifice in a way back home. And how does that fact, what we have been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross, how does that affect the way you and I will sing the final song today, our our close-out worship song? How will it affect how you and I do life this afternoon? Tomorrow, the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And he's asking in this sermon, what are we, the redeemed? What are we doing in light of our salvation? What are we building, really? What are we doing to be in in accord with our Father's narrow pathway? Will it rest in Jesus? Will it stand up at the final judgment? What will be left? When the storms and the floods of this year subside, if they ever do, when next year's come, because they're going to come, forget about next year, tomorrow, whose strength are you and I dependent on? The government? Please, our friends, our parents, oh, I know, capitalism, my job, our rugged individualism. At the end of Matthew's gospel in chapter 28, we have Jesus telling us what we can do. He just lays it out, his final words. What we can do if we care, if we care about God's redemption of people. And Jesus said, came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We have all we need. We don't need anything else. We have all we need to go tell people the good news of Jesus and the coming kingdom. We have all we need to live like the citizens of this coming kingdom as Jesus describes it in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 on the Sermon on the Mount. If we really care about people, if we really care about their eternal destiny, We need to each make sure that we're wholeheartedly committed to Jesus Christ because until we are building on Him, we aren't that much eternal use for those we encounter on a day-to-day basis. So a natural follow-up question would be, well, that makes sense. Great. I can see that, how that all plays out, and I can see what Jesus is doing here. So how do you build on the rock? And Jesus replies to that question with the heart of the Old Testament answer in verse 24. Everyone then, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, and does them. 
Our theological and our religious world is full of hearing. Have you noticed? We're overloaded with God talk. Sayings on t-shirts. Pithy lines on Facebook. What if we just heard and then obeyed? That's it. Hear and obey will thrill the heart of God. Hear and obey must be our living message, our religion in practice. Hear and obey is possible only by the grace of God. And God does, through his kingdom citizens, he puts on a display, a grand display of the gospel message. He does it through many of your lives, day in and day out. It is glorious and God-honoring to watch. And God will put on this display and show our world that his message is true. It's generous. It's overflowing with hope. So let's review the sermon, uh, chapter 5 through 7, and be convicted together. It's really short, so don't, don't freak out. Okay, so chapter 5 through 7. If you follow what Jesus is saying here, it'll transform your character. 5, 11 through 12. It'll change who you were. It'll affect your influence. You become more influential. Verses 13 to 16. It will show itself in practical righteousness. Just not a lot of God talk, but you'll be doing righteous things. It'll touch your devotional life. It'll revolutionize it. It will radically alter your ambitions, the things that you may have been holding up as, this is really what I need to be uh, focusing on. These are my goals. It will change some of those. It'll transform your relationships. Don't we all need that? And the last one, what we're looking at today, it will mark you out as a wholehearted servant of the king. We'll no longer be spoiled brats. That apparently is what Jesus was looking for. It's where we've been for the last 10 weeks. These are the marks of the disciple that Jesus calls. This is the kingdom manifesto. It's detailed in, with, with just immense authority from Jesus Christ himself in one of the first messages he delivers. And the chapter ends, the chapter 7 ends with, in verse 28. And when Jesus finished saying these things, listen to this, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their own scribes. They hadn't heard anything like this before. Our world has not heard anything like this before until we tell them. And then I'm going to go into chapter 8, verse 1. And when Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. We have been made free in Christ. Let that sink in. We have been made free in Christ, freed not to retreat from the world into our little church communities. It's a gift of God. John said, when he quotes Jesus as saying, you will know the truth and the truth will, you guys know it, will set you free. <laughs> we are good trees who produce good fruit. 
through the work of the Holy Spirit, and God comes into each of our lives while we were bad, and he transforms us into something good. Through his word, through the Holy Spirit, we are in Christ through, through faith productive in this life. Are we not? We're loving and serving our neighbors because God is doing a new thing with sinful, selfish you and me. We were created by God and planted by God where we are with roots that get their, their source and their strength from Jesus Christ himself. And he wants us to be fruit. <laughs> Maybe it's while you're changing diapers. Maybe it's while you're helping out a friend who's just been in a car accident. Maybe it's when you're comforting a worried friend through the loss of a job or through getting sick or, or just, just confused about what's going on in our nation. That's what God wants, and that's what God enables you and I to do. In Christ, we're not set free to escape from our neighbor's needs. We're, we're, we're set free to fight tirelessly for our neighbor. Why? So they'll have a better life? So we'll feel good about ourselves? No. So that through that opportunity, we might have the opportunity to not just show, but share the gospel message of Jesus Christ and so that our neighbor may trust in Jesus Christ themselves and enjoy the fruits of belonging to God. May this sermon be so. Would you rise with me? We're going to sing. We're going to close. Are you going to be able to stop working? Are we cool? All right, good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're about to lift our voices to you from lives that you have redeemed through your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are uh, amazed at not only what you have done, but what you are going to do, even today. And so we lift our voices to you to lift you up, for you alone are worthy. In the name of Jesus, we pray all of this. Amen.